Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 180 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most popular and respected actors of his generation. A Brit who made his name and remains best known for playing a 21st century Sherlock Holmes on the BBC Sherlock, all four series of which have brought him Emmy nominations, and the second of which brought him an Emmy win in 2014, and who also has established himself as a star on the big screen in films ranging from The Imitation Game, for which he received a Best Actor Oscar nomination in 2015, to Doctor Strange, the 2016 film in which he made his debut as the eponymous Marvel superhero. I'm talking, of course, about the subject of adoration and in some cases obsession from the Cumber Collective, Sherlockians, and many others, Benedict Cumberbatch. But first, with the 42nd Toronto International Film Festival moving into the rearview mirror, having helped, as always, to clarify the race to the Oscars, I had the opportunity to sit down in Toronto with the two main forces behind it, Fest Director and CEO Piers Handling and its Artistic Director Cameron Bailey. Pairs and Cameron, thank you so much for fitting this in at a time that I know is hectic and probably you'd prefer to be sleeping or resting or whatever. But uh, no, it's good to be here. I really appreciate it. And I want to begin by asking what for each of you has been the main theme or storyline of festival number 42? Pierce, can we start with you? God. <laughs> well, I think thematically we sort of teased out the idea of survival amidst a whole bunch of chaos. I think that sort of struck a note with some of the major filmmakers of the year. And you could probably go through some of the key, key films from Downsizing through to First I Killed My Father, Mother. I mean, it was kind of a prevalent theme, The Mountain Between Us. It was just uh, sheer survival, either physical survival or the whole, whole notion. I mean, Kings, the film we yeah. premiered last night. Again, just within the racial chaos of that, those particular events, people surviving, just trying to keep body and soul together. Yeah. I think that for me was, uh, was one of the key ideas of the year. Obviously, you can read a lot into that in terms yeah. of what's going on in the outside world. I mean, I think it's a very uncertain, unsettled time for a lot of people. People are less certain about their future, individual futures, the economic future, the future of the planet. I think, obviously, downsizing deals very directly with that environmentally, what's going to happen to us as a human race, what's going to happen to the planet. So I think this was you know, one of the, the key ideas that so many of the important filmmakers yeah. were dealing with. Cameron, that's the theme. How about a storyline? What are, is there a... Uh, development, a news story, a deal, or something that people seem to be talking about the most here? 
You know, I think for me, what's been interesting is to see the ongoing debate around gender equity in the film industry, which goes, of course, well beyond our festival or any festival and deep into Hollywood, deep into international cinema. But to see how that's played out now as well, uh, to have films like Haifa Al-Mansour's Mary Shelley premiering here, to see the incredible buzz coming around Lady Bird and Greta Gerwig's debut as a feature film director, I think that's really great to see as well. Our platform program, just really through sheer coincidence, Mm -hmm. is equally split between male and female filmmakers. This is something Piers and I were really proud to see. I think there's more conversations happening about it. We have our own fundraising campaign called Share Her Journey, which a lot of people were discovering at the festival as well. So the conversations around the change that is coming were exciting to see here. By the time people hear this episode, it will be the day after you announce your Audience Award winner. This this has been a, a pretty good harbinger of of award success. I know that's not your primary concern here at all, but it can't be ignored that we, let me just mention that Chariots of Fire, American Beauty, Slumdog Millionaire, The King's Speech, and most recently 12 Years a Slave won that en route to the Best Picture Oscar, and many others won it en route to others. If I can ask you, since it will be history by the time people hear this, what would be your guess right now if you had, let's say, even two or three films each based on your since uh, you're, you're men about town here, you're talking to everybody, you're hearing what people are saying. What are the th- three that seem like the best shots right now, Piers? I think uh, Shape of Water, for sure. Mm-hmm. Guillermo's film, I think, is way, way up there. I think it's very, very popular, um, being received extremely well. Luca Guadagnino's film, Call Me By Your Name, I think is probably number two, mm-hmm. or the second one. Yeah. We're not ranking them in any kind of way. Standing Innovation at the first screening at the Ryerson, which yeah. was terrific. I mean, the film premiered in Sundance. We were yeah. happy to have it here. But I think it's just ignited a public, and obviously the press have really seriously paid attention to it. And maybe the third one, which I think is a, probably a bit of a surprise to all of us, is I, Tonya, mm. which I think has really kind of ignited a lot of interest. People, and it surprised people too. Yeah. Obviously, there were a lot of front runners coming into the festival. A lot of people were really anticipating some of the major films. And I think this one's kind of snuck up a little bit like Guillermo's film too. Cam and I saw Guillermo's film. We're really excited about it, partially because it was shot here in Toronto, but yes. also because we love Guillermo. And we think this is probably as fine a film as Pan's Labyrinth. It's in that, I think it's not that kind of stature. So, you know, two surprises, Call Me By Your Name, which is a relatively, I would, I'd hesitate to use the word small film, but small scale, very intimate, and just so well directed. Yeah. It really struck an emotional chord with our audience, I think. And I guess actually all three of them. I mean, if you look at the audience award winners, obviously they have to strike that emotional chord. I think that's the key, key thing that people are looking for, our audience in particular. And we should note that I, Tanya was one of the major acquisitions here at the festival. Neon bought it here. This is uh, a newer distributor, and so people will get a chance to see Margot Robbie and Allison Janney in that, presumably this year. Cameron, your three? You know, I think Piers mentioned three of the films that I've certainly heard the most yeah. about. And, and, you know, I was there for Guillermo's Canadian premiere at the Elgin Theatre where the film was yes, partly shot. Yes. And it was like a rock concert. Yeah. The audience was so excited to see it. I would maybe also add Molly's Game, Aaron yeah. Sorkin's film, which just 
played through the roof here, and people were so excited to see him directing. I'd go back to Lady Bird, which I think has received a, a rapturous welcome. People are so pleased to see yeah. Greta doing this. So there have been a few, and then actually a couple of the Midnight Madness films, Mom and Dad, with Nicolas Cage, played mm-hmm. really well. Bodied, Joseph Kahn's film played really well also. And Disaster Artist, I think, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That, was, yeah. that was hilarious. And I don't know if this one is eligible, but it would certainly, I think, have my support of the movies that I've seen here. I've tried to see like three or four a day, and the one that I've just fell in love with here, catching up with it, was uh, The Florida Project, which beautiful film. it seems like people are just swept away by that. I was thinking, having also uh, almost a decade ago here seen Slumdog Millionaire at your fest, it felt to me almost like an American mm. slumdog kind of feel. Huh, but, yeah. um, but anyway, I, I guess I want to ask you, Piers, you've been with The Fest since 1982. I know you originally were here as a programmer, later programming director in 87, and then CEO since 94. You've just announced that the 2018 edition is going to be your last. Why Why is this sad news? That's a long run, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really is. You know, 35, 36 years in the trenches working for the festival. I guess it'll be 24 years as CEO at the end yeah. of the day. It's a very demanding job. I've obviously given an enormous amount to it. I uh, loved it, every single bit of it. Mm-hmm. It's been tr- just fantastic in every kind of way. So proud of building the festival into what it's become, along with so many of my collaborators, and also just building this building. I mean, it's, a, it's for me, a very a wonderful legacy, I guess. Yeah. And I just kind of felt it's terrific to go out on top, for one thing. I think the industry's changing a little bit as well. My generation of filmmakers are probably beginning to move on in some kinds of ways. They're getting close to the end of their career. I mean, some of the, the great moments of the festival this year for me were spending time with people like Vim Vendors, Michael Haneke, mm-hmm. Robert Goodigui, and, you know, just some of those filmmakers that I've grown up with, really admired. They're a few years older than I am, but I think they're getting towards the end of their career. So I just felt it was probably time for um, fresh blood in the organization, for me to pursue other projects too. I'm really interested in gaining my freedom back, I guess, in a way, um, not being a complete slave to, to this job. I mean, it's, it's extremely demanding. And of course, you lose your summer entirely. From May to September, you're basically locked in screening rooms. And in Canada, we have a very short summer. Yeah. I'm an outdoor guy. I want to do a lot of outdoor things, skiing, I'm big skier, winter sports as well as summer sports. Did I hear you were a mountain climber too? I was, and still am a little bit, but yeah, yeah, more of a hiker than a mountain climber. But in my younger days, I was certainly climbing mountains. And just to contextualize for people, what led you to TIFF in the first place 35 years ago? Well, I love a film. I came to the first festival, and I was working at the Canadian Film Institute in Ottawa. So I would go anywhere to see a film, to be honest. I was going to Montreal a lot. Anywhere to see a foreign film in Mm -hmm. particular. Anywhere to see the art films that we weren't seeing in our regular cinemas. So that was, it was an easy step for me to come down to to the first festival. It was terrifically well programmed, by the Mm -hmm. way. That's really why I came down. They did a big program of new German cinema. Vim Vendors actually did a complete retrospective of Vim's films in 1976. And they were running Klugas and Fassbinders and Herzogs. It was so well programmed. I just wanted to see all those films. And what led me back finally was I decided to leave my job in Ottawa. And the guy that was running the festival was my closest friend, Wayne Clarkson. Mm -hmm. So I phoned Wayne up and said, have you got a job? And he sent me to Rio de Janeiro for two weeks to run a program of Brazilian films. So I think we knew, Wayne and I, because he also grew up in Ottawa, that we would end up in Toronto at some point in time. It was the center, the epicenter of the English-Canadian film industry. And there wasn't a lot happening at that point, you know, when we were starting out in our careers, but the festival was one of those beacons where somebody like myself and him 
cinephiles really wanted to intervene in some kind of way in the culture. That was very important to us, too, that we weren't isolated. We weren't in an ivory tower. We were actually trying to make a difference. And I was very committed to Canadian cinema, and I thought that the venue or the the vehicle of the festival could provide that type of uh, opportunity. So that was really why I got involved and, and why I stuck around. we should note that it was when you, the same year that you became CEO, I guess, 94, was the year that it morphed from being the Festival of Festivals into being TIFF. So that was just to give people a time marker. Now, Cameron, I read that your association with the fest began through this gentleman, Pierce. That's right. But after you had initially turned him down, what, what <laughs> yeah. was that about? You know, I was young and foolish <laughs> and um, just not that long out of uh, university. I was actually still in graduate school, I think, at the time. And Piers approached me. I'd begun some writing and a little bit of programming in Toronto independently for no money. Mm-hmm. And Piers approached me because there was an opening for the Canadian film programming team. And at that point, I thought I just didn't know enough. I was still, you know, green at this. And I said no the first time. And thankfully, he came back a year later and there was a, another opening that came up and that time I was smart enough to say yes and Piers has been really the only boss that I've ever known at TIFF and you know I've, I've learned so much from him. Well so that was 89 I believe when you first said no, 90 when you yeah. said yes and then by 2012 you were the you were made artistic director. So mm-hmm. what you know for somebody who hears these titles CEO and director versus artistic director how would you describe or synopsize your primary responsibility here, Piers, uh, you first. Well, I have total responsibility for the entire organization. Of course, we're more than just a festival. We built the building, opened it uh, seven years ago. So it's now a year-round programming institution with a significantly larger budget than it was when I took over as CEO. So my responsibility is really all of the finances of the organization, of course, to make sure that we're running a balanced budget. I report to the board of directors. But because I've come out of the artistic side of the organization, obviously that's very, very important to me as well. So I've been very involved in all the strategic plans and, and strategic plans in terms of the future direction of this institution from the very beginning. So I would say those are the two key things. Strategic plan or planning, where we're going to go as an organization, as an institution, and then, of course, just to make sure that financially it's all coherent. So there's other things, obviously, I do, but I would say, Scott, in a a nutshell, those are probably the two key areas that I'm responsible for. And Cameron? My area has been the festival for many years, for the last uh, several years since 2008, and more recently has expanded to include a year-round programming yeah. as well. So making sure that the the quality of what we're doing, the range, the depth is there. Uh, we've got a, a big programming team for the festival. We do a lot of programming year-round, theatrical releases. A, we have a cinematech, a library, and a lot of different learning programs, and making sure those are all integrated and running as one coherent whole. Now, somebody like me who unfortunately only gets to be in Toronto during the fest, we know you primarily through intros because somehow, seemingly, you guys are at like six introductions simultaneously (laughs) at the same time. What, though, is festival week or actually really like festival 10, 11 days like for you guys? What's your what's your day like during that? Hey, you get up pretty early. (laughs) (laughs) You're involved in a whole bunch of things, actually. I mean, our main job is really hosting people when they're here, making sure the filmmakers have a good time. So as you say, we're doing a lot of introductions, but we're also hosting lunches, attending dinners, hosting dinners. Some of it's press, obviously, interviews with, with the media over the course of the event itself. But it's also just keeping your hands on things, making sure that the industry and the media are being well taken care of. I know, of course, I have a lot of friends there, so you're just sort of checking in with them 
just anecdotally, how's it going, any issues, et cetera, et cetera. You serve oversight for the entire organization. You want to make sure that it's running very smoothly, logistically. Yeah. But you're really in the trenches. I mean, I'm in a car virtually the entire day in one way or another, just driving back and forth. Yeah. Occasionally dropping into the office here between appointments, but mostly it's it's the hosting game and it's making sure that uh, the, the entire festival is running really smoothly. And Cameron, sort of similar situation for you? Very similar. I think, yeah, hosting the film world is really the most important thing. This is one of those stops in the year where a vast number of people, roughly 7,000 industry delegates, producers, directors, buyers, sellers, 1,200 journalists are in town, all, hundreds of filmmakers. We have to make sure that we are essentially, they have a good time, yeah. making sure that uh, everything that they need, they're getting done here. And just that there's a kind of a spirit that is sustained, a spirit of you know excitement, positivity, that yeah. kind of thing, discovery especially. We want to make sure people are finding new things while they're here as well. I've read a number of interviews with both of you where you've sort of, I think, wanted to somewhat distance yourself from the idea of the whole award season. I, it happens around you, but you don't want to necessarily feed into it. But the reality is that it is a part of our lives now. It's part of why certain movies want to unveil themselves in the, early, in the early fall, like now. When did this become the reality for TIFF that the award season was so much a, a part of the equation? I would say it started in the 90s, but I think the breakthrough film was obviously American Beauty. It really kind of put us on the map that way. I mean, there were a number of nominations that came out of Toronto in the 80s and 90s. Mm. But it's funny, it's sort of American Beauty, it just really shifted because it was so impactful, that film. It won so many nominations, it won the best picture. And it just kind of opened the floodgates. I think it was the result of a lot of work we'd been doing with the studios, to be honest, over the 10, 15 years, trying to attract them, get them. It was a tricky film, actually. DreamWorks brought it here. They really didn't know what to do with it. it that, all that part of it was really interesting. But, of course, it worked for them. And so I would say that that was the moment where the rest of the studio started to pay attention. But, it's you know, it's not just about awards, Scott. It's also about commercial potential for the film, commercial potential and reality. Yeah. So I make a second point that uh, and we actually began to compile information data around this 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 time that uh, films that broke through, especially English language films that broke the hundred million dollar box office ceiling in North America. That was that was pretty important, and I think for foreign language films it was probably like ten million dollars, five to ten million dollars. So we make the argument with a lot of um, the suppliers, studios, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that we had films that went through those ceilings. And, of course, for them, for the studios, mm -hmm. the awards were nice. And I would say 15, 20 years ago, they were very, very important. Yes. The commercial value of what the festival could actually bring to a film, they weren't paying that much attention in terms of the films that, that had lined up with Toronto, the right. films that we had broken. We did. And so we actually pushed that information into their face. And I think at that stage of the game, it was right. You're now, you can... Really, you know, launch a film into the award season, but you can actually launch it into the marketplace and make significant money for us. Well, you anticipate where I'm going next, which is the marketplace. I think there's been a lot of big deals that have come out of Toronto. I think the biggest is still Can a Song Save Your Life from 2013. It ended up going out as Begin Again, but Weinstein's paid $7 million, I think, and then a, with a commitment for $20 million P&A. What are some other, you know, Deals is that important to you to see that deals are happening around here, and are there others that sort of stand out in your memory, Cameron? You know the the Chris Rock film. I will always remember oh, top. top five uh, that that uh, launched out of here a few years back. 
more than the numbers or the specific films, I think what I remember is the environment. You know, sometimes when a big film comes in, it's the world premiere, it's for sale, and the agent is kind of working the room and making sure all the buyers are there. And the key element in Toronto is the public audience. You know, they, they want all the buyers to be there with the public audience to feel that reaction. Toronto's famous for audiences that know movies and are enthusiastic about movies, and that's how sales happen. And so, you know, the Princess of Wales, the Ryerson, the Elgin, are, are all of our big houses, Roy Thompson Hall, have been used to really launch those movies into, into acquisition. When I first came to cover this fest, it was 11 years ago, and everything was in Yorkville. What what was it? What, were, were you guys looking for something more central and that led you to the Tiff Bell Lightbox idea? Or if Tiff Bell Lightbox had ended up in Yorkville, would that have been just as fine? The latter. We actually were looking for a piece of land and we drew kind of a rectangle in Toronto from the lakefront up to, I think it was probably just north of Bloor Street. And then we went east and west, and I can't remember what those streets were. And we were very interested in just free properties. We didn't own a piece of land, and we were talking to a lot of developers. I would love to have remained in Yorkville, to be honest, in all kinds of ways. Although I think at that stage of the game, the galas were still were down at Roy yeah. Thompson Hall, and so we were separated as a festival. And I think we all felt that maybe there was the center of gravity was moving a little bit down to to the entertainment yeah. district. The CBC had just opened their new building. The AGO was undergoing a renovation. There was just a little bit of a cluster down here. OCAD, the Ontario College of Art and Design, was down here too. Obviously, the Mervish Theatre's right beside, so there's a theatre area. And we just actually uh, lucked into this space, yeah. lucked into the land. It was owned by Ivan Reitman and his yeah. two sisters. They had no idea we were looking to build a building. We had no idea that they had a piece of land, but Kismet just sort of brought us together. Obviously, it's really worked out well for us. We were looking for a bunch of things. We were looking for access to subway, streetcars. We wanted a lot of street traffic around us. We wanted to be part of a hub mm -hmm. of energy and restaurants or whatever, retail. So obviously Yorkville has that, but I think this area does too. No, so it was, we were very, very lucky. You talked about the Toronto audiences and, and you talked to distributors and they all say there's, there's also something smart and energetic and just sort of unique about your audiences and that can result in screenings that are unlike anywhere else. The ones that I think back to as being particularly electric were back-to-back -back years with movies nobody knew about really going in and then came out on fire. 2007 Juno, 2008 Slumdog Millionaire. Those ones I'll never forget. What for mm -hmm. each of you, not that you get a lot of opportunity to actually sit through a movie here mm -hmm. during the festival, but what for each of you stands out as you think back over the years about you know electric screenings? You know, there, there are a few for me, I, I would say, and, and sometimes it's not just the feel-good movies that do it, but the movies where you feel something. Yeah. And I, I do remember in 2013, 12 Years a Slave, for instance, yeah. that's a powerful movie. It's a tough film to watch, uh, I think, for a lot of viewers. And people came out of it just drained, you know? They felt like they'd been through so much. The film actually ultimately has an uplifting yeah. ending, but my God, you gotta you go <laughs> you through gotta a lot there, to get yeah. there, right? And then, you know, I remember just uh, especially how Steve McQueen, the director, and also the cast began to essentially help the audience through it, you know, in Q&As especially. You would hear the way that they talked about the film, and they would give the audience a place to kind of put all of that emotion. And that's, I think, what's great about the festival as well. It's not You're not just seeing the movie, but you're there with the people who made it, yeah. and they can help you through that. Pierce? 
Well, more recently, I guess Hotel Rwanda for me is probably one of those films. It came in with no real attention at all. And of course, it was an electric story. And what really transformed that screen or turned into a very special one was that the, the real person was in the audience and came up. And I can't remember names, I'm sorry. But uh, it was based on his, his, uh, his story. I think it was Paul um, And it, that was exactly. Yeah. It was just uh, electrifying, that kind mm-hmm. of moment. And I think the moments where you actually do have the real person and you unveil them at the end of the screening is really yeah, very, very special. You had that with Breathe this year, one of the real people. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Stronger yeah. as well. Yes. He, he actually came out on stage early uh, at the very beginning of the yeah. screening. But that was also, I mean, it's so... You know, Jake obviously played the the role, but have the real person there, and he came out with the artificial legs. That's very, very moving. When there's a great performance as well, and the audience reacts to that, I was thinking initially of Julianne Moore and Still Alice, where that was a film that I think came in fairly unheralded. A lot of people didn't know about it, and it was playing, I think it was actually a matinee screening on a Monday, and just the reaction coming off that to her, you know, when she comes back on stage afterwards, Last King of Scotland with Forrest Mm -hmm. Whitaker as well. There's some moments when you feel like you know that this person is headed directly into the award circle. I think King's Speech with Colin Firth was another great. That was great, yeah. Yeah. For me, going back in history, I never forget when we ran the Kieślowski Decalogue, and I mean, this is a uh, you know name that probably a lot of people don't remember anymore, Krzysztof Kieślowski. That was when I saw a director being discovered, and that was incredible because it was totally electrifying. And I'll never forget the final day of the festival. We'd show the entire Decalogue over the course of the 10 days, one by one. And Kieślowski came into the theater for the final, insta- you know, the final installment. And the entire audience just stood up and gave wow. him a standing ovation. Wow. And, of course, that launched his North American career. Yeah. It was just sort of propelled him into prominence. Sadly, he's now no longer with us. But that, for me, was one of those remarkable moments of discovery where you could actually, within the course of 10 days, you could change the career of somebody. That's incredible. Now, TIFF, I guess, in the best sense, can feel during these 10 days or whatever it ends up being sort of like a bubble, like you're in a bubble, I'm sure more for you than anyone else. But crazy things have happened during TIFFs over the years. And I just want to remind people, 20 years ago this year was Princess Diana getting killed in the car crash. 16 years ago, 9-11. This year, the hurricanes. I wonder, as you think back about those examples or perhaps others that I'm forgetting, just what was the, I mean, I, I guess particularly 9-11 would be an, an interesting thing. What was it like for you guys on 9-11 here in the middle of all this? Uh, that was an incredible day. Um, maybe the toughest day I've ever faced in my life professionally, mm-hmm. just in terms of managing this, that situation and tiptoeing through it. It was very difficult because we honestly, at the beginning, were in shock. We watched the, the TV stuff, and as soon as the towers, both towers fell down, we turned the TV set off and we moved into emergency mode. At that stage of the game, formed a very small emergency team. We realized we had to give a press conference very, very quickly. We had to make a couple of really fast decisions in terms of shutting the festival down, uh, shutting it down for the day, and then at the same time, do we shut it down for the entire festival for the rest of it? It was right in the middle of the festival, too. Mm-hmm. It was, the, I think, the first Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So that was just thinking on your feet, uh, an immense amount of pressure. The day went by in a blur. We actually held two press conferences that day. We were reaching out to the filmmakers, especially for the gala films. There were two galas that night, talking to them in terms of our decision. We didn't want them to be blindsided. We wanted them to be on side. So we w- walked ourselves slowly through it. We initially decided that we would shut the day down. Mm-hmm. We did. We shut everything down. And then we had to very quickly, almost immediately, make the decision in terms of the rest of the festival within a couple of hours. And that was the trickiest one, to be honest. The first one was an easier one. The second one was 
what should we do that's appropriate so that we're not uh, criticized and attacked. We obviously took counsel from a few people. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was really a tough one. But to be honest, the one that I really felt stretched in, in a different kind of way was two years later with SARS. The SARS crisis hit Toronto in a way that pre- people have probably forgotten. Yeah. And it hit in the early spring. It hit as we were just beginning to assemble the program. And it looked at one point in time as if no stars were going to come to this festival. And I remember articles being written in the local press that the festival was going to be bereft of stars. And of course, without stars, you were basically dead in the water. Mm-hmm. And that was really, that tested me just in terms of getting on the phone, persuading, talking to people, trying to talk them off a ledge. And the big breakthrough actually came with uh, Neil Young, who had a film that year, directed. Neil said that he wanted his film in the festival and he was prepared to attend. Uh And I could then get on the phone to L.A. and get on the phone to the rest of the world and say, Neil Young's coming. And that actually broke a little bit of the logjam. But that was, I think, also an incredibly difficult year. Mm -hmm. Cameron, what was one harder than others for you? Yeah, you know, every year is different. I think what we've learned is that although we are in this bubble of the festival, there are thousands of people here for it, and life goes on. You know, yeah. I, I know that during 9-11, there, have been, there were people who were stranded here who couldn't get back home, particularly across the border to yeah. the U.S. Flights were grounded, and things happened. Uh, there's, uh, there are people who are living in Toronto now who've, who changed their lives. Yeah. I know a woman who, who had to stay in Toronto, got married to a guy here, and moved from Oregon to, to Toronto. So, you know, What's fascinating to me is just how the festival becomes woven into the fabric of people's lives as a result. It's almost a variation of come from away. I don't know if you guys... Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But Okay, so one of the things that in recent years you've had to address is the fact that you guys fall very closely on the schedule just after there's Venice, then there's Telluride, then there's Toronto. And I understand that it that can create complications for each of you. And I wonder, you know, the the thing that you've been dealing with, I guess, over the last, I don't know, four or five years, is how how should that affect your scheduling and locations and things? Because I totally am sympathetic to the idea that if a movie tells you it's going to premiere here, then if it is shown somewhere else before, that could be frustrating. The counter-argument I know you, you're, you've heard is that if it shows to a handful of people effectively in Telluride, does that actually undercut anything that happens here in Toronto where there's so many people? How has this evolved? What, how has your thought process about this situation evolved over the last few years? I think the industry's changing in all kinds of ways. And uh, I think you have to put it in that kind of perspective, Scott. It's now extremely competitive. There are diminishing opportunities for a lot of films in the marketplace. Every single film is looking for more and more opportunity. They really are. They're scrambling. So many of our friends are finding it very, very difficult, producers, directors, to make their films and to have them screened and shown. Festivals, obviously, for a certain kind of film, provide an enormous profile, enormous platform. So I think it's, at the end of the day, it should all be about the films and what can we do collectively as festivals, collectively as people supporting film culture to make sure that that work is shown prominently and given the best opportunity it possibly can to get into the marketplace to be seen by real people in the paying public. So as the fall season has become more crowded and as there are fewer films out there and fewer opportunities too, 
I think festivals have had to adjust to that. So for me, the festival wars are, you know, in some ways false wars. I mean, of course, everyone wants world premieres, and there's this hype around world premieres and where the film screened first. And we understand that as festival organizers, Cam and I are, you know, deeply involved in that game. But I think at the, at the end of the day, it really is about what's best for the film. To be honest, I consider Venice, Telluride, Toronto simultaneous world premieres. They premieres a couple of days before in Venice or a couple of days before in Telluride. The filmmakers, the sales agents, the producers want, in some cases, uh, the double whammy hit of or triple whammy. They want a, a European venue. They want to come perhaps to, to Telluride and then to go to Toronto. Toronto provides something I think that the other festivals don't provide, and that's huge, enormous amplification because of the public we have here and because of the press corps that comes here as well. Telluride and Venice are obviously very limited in terms of the English language press that go there. So we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. We're all trying to elevate, of course, a number of the same films yeah. as well. There's an enormous overlap in terms of the films we're showing. But at the same time, Toronto has a unique voice, a very different voice. We're obviously world premiering a lot of very, very different films, very special films, some of which went to neither of those festivals. So we're very, very proud of those. I mean, I, Tanya being yeah. one of them. And we're, you know, we're, we're very proud that we uh, are entrusted by the makers of the films with, with their work. And every once in a while, of course, we'll get that type of a breakthrough. So I don't take, you know, the, the festival whatever wars, I, I honestly, at the end of the day, maybe it's as I'm getting closer to the end of my festival career running a festival, that, uh, you know, I don't take it that seriously, although I realize that we're deeply entrenched, as we have to be, in terms of protecting our position. For sure. And, and just for the record, though, Cameron, the current policy is if you play at Venice or Telluride, is it you, you you're certainly welcome here, but it's not going to be in one of the three principal venues? Is that... Correct. Films that are making their Canadian premieres, meaning they've played in, elsewhere in North yeah. America before coming to Toronto, yeah, we tend to start presenting those films from Monday forward right. uh, in terms of the big venues that, right. uh, that we use. So this year's lineup, you guys were, I, I think you cut by about 20% because of cost concerns or things like that. Can you, I mean, it's still bigger than, I don't know of any other festival that has this size of a lineup, I think it went from 397 to 339. Can you just clarify what what the rationale for that is? So cost concerns were not an issue at not, all. Okay. Definitely not. No, okay. Cam and I had discussions about this last fall. I think it was curatorial 100%. We uh, really wanted to tighten the festival and make sure that the films that we were presenting were really of a high quality. And I think we'd obviously heard from the industry, too, that it was enormous. We were running more films for the public in our official selection than any other festival in the world. I mean, Cannes has about 80 films official yeah. in its official selection. Yeah. Berlin had about 260. We were running 300 features. We just thought it was a little bit too much, especially as I think the international industry is contracting in all kinds of ways. So we just wanted to make sure that we had a really, really tight festival. And to be honest, the feedback we're hearing this year, I think, is exactly that. Yeah. They feel there are so many good films, the public, the industry, and the media. It allows them to negotiate the festival in an easier way. They're not being distracted by you know so many films that they have to go to. I mean, one shouldn't forget that there's so many films that the media and industry, I think, have to come to in Toronto. Yeah, they true. really do because of the yeah. exactly <laughs> sales rights or just the, the sheer talent who are right. involved. So if you can cut down a little bit on that and you give more space and more air to some of the foreign language films, while at the same time creating a more rigorous, um, tightly defined program, I think you know it, it, it is only going to benefit the festival. With our last two or so minutes here, I just want to do some some other uh, big picture questions. It seems like TV is playing a bigger role at 
some of the biggest film festivals. I think Top of the Lake was at Cannes, 13th, which I guess, you know, it's debatable. Is that a film or a TV film open? The New York Film Festival, you guys have had a, some examples of this as well. What is the role of TV, perhaps long-form TV, whatever, going to be here at the fest? Do you see it growing? It's storytelling, and it's storytelling from some of the most talented writers and directors and producers in the world. Sometimes it's in feature film format, sometimes it's in long-form series now. So to have people like Jill Soloway come up last year, she did to present uh, the premiere of season three of Transparent, that's important to us because she's one of the great storytellers right now. David Simon with The Deuce, uh, launching that new show here in our primetime program, that's also important. In some cases, these are filmmakers who are turning to long-form series for the small screen. But in some cases, these are people who are auteurs in their own right within television, like David Simon. Of course, he's made some of the greatest series that TV's ever seen. So we like being involved with those artists, and our audience certainly is watching them. The same audience that watches premium television is watching independent and international films. So it made perfect sense. If we can grow it, we would absolutely love to. Piers, at the opening and closing screenings last year, and at every screening this year, you guys have thank the Indian tribes that once occupied this area where the festival happens. What prompted that? I think growing awareness on the part of Canada as a culture in terms of how it's treated its um, First Nations people. There's a, a big move underway right now in terms of reconciliation. We've been aware of some of the these terrible situations in the past historically, the way we've treated First Nations. But there's not, of course, at this point in time, enough awareness. But I think that the new government has put a huge priority on that. But we also have Indigenous uh, First Nations programmers here. When we moved into the building, we were very conscious that we were moving onto other people's land. We were building on a site of historic importance. Irish immigrant settlers were here in the uh, 19th century. So uh, we had to be respectful to that heritage as well as, uh, of course, to First Nations. So uh, when we moved into the building, our director of film, who is First Nations, uh, suggested that we do a smudging ceremony, which we did. So I think he gradually began to educate just the entire organization. But to be honest, I think it was increasing sensitivity around this issue and sensitization on the part of the entire culture in Canada. And one of the wonderful things for me, of course, now is when we acknowledge that we're on their land, uh, we're met with applause at every single screening. It's really, really remarkable to see the generosity of, of course, all of the audiences that we have here in Toronto, just this acknowledgement of uh, First Nations rights. That is something that is newly added before screening. Something that I have noticed has disappeared before screenings this year is the word piracy on the trailer that plays before every screening. So we are suddenly no longer really often hearing the famous, infamous Canadian ARGS. And I want to ask, was that a conscious thing? Because I will say, as somebody who ends up seeing 20 or whatever movies here every year, it is, uh, it is appreciated because you start to go nuts after a while hearing that. So Cameron, what happened? You know, it wasn't a conscious thing. Uh, audiences, as a way of just kind of having a bit of fun before right. the screening, when they when they were told the anti-piracy message, right. they would pretend to be pirates. Right. They'd say, <laughs> like that. And, you know, it was a bit of fun, but we want to make sure that the, the anti-piracy message actually landed right. with people. And, you know, th- that's one of those festival traditions. Like at the Cannes Film Festival, somebody will yell out Raoul at a certain <laughs> point. And if you don't know what that is, then you have to kind of learn the history. Right. I actually hope that some new tradition pops up. I hope it's not as kind of consistent, perhaps, as that. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, but it just helps people enjoy the event, I think. Lastly, where will each of you be on Monday? 
Oh my God. I'll probably be in the woods yeah. walking north of Toronto because I'm a big hiker and I haven't had any exercise for two weeks. <laughs> so I just want to get out of town right. and I'll be in bed early in the morning. Yes, good. And Cameron? I'll be taking my son to school, and then I will be in the office, sadly. <laughs> Some wrap-up to do. <laughs> oh, no. Please take a vacation. Thank you guys so much. It's been every year. It's terrific, and I hope you know how much it's appreciated. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very Scott. much. Thank you. And now for my interview with Benedict Cumberbatch. The 41-year-old and I met up at Toronto's Intercontinental Hotel the morning after the evening premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival of Alfonso Gomez Rejon's latest film, The Current War a drama in which Cumberbatch plays Thomas Edison opposite Michael Shannon's George Westinghouse. Over the course of our conversation, Cumberbatch and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, what drew him to acting in the first place, and particularly to screen acting as time went by, how he landed Sherlock and why he thinks it clicked in such a big way, how the cult-like celebrity that came with Sherlock changed his life and impacted his ability to work as an actor, why he's wound up playing a number of people who actually lived or are still living. From Stephen Hawking in the 2004 TV film Hawking, his first major leading role, to Julian Assange in 2013's The Fifth Estate, one of his few projects that wasn't well-received, to Alan Turing in the aforementioned The Imitation Game, and Thomas Edison in the aforementioned The Current War. Plus, much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Really Pleasure appreciate Scott. it. Good nice to see, see you again. Yeah. Nice to see you too. So we always just begin with the uh, very basic. Where were yeah. you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in London on and off. I went to boarding school, so a bit of East Grinstead and Harrow. And uh, I have parents who are both actors. Yes. Yeah. So kind of born, born in the trunk, I think. Born into it, yeah. Now, were they, you know, growing up, was it sort of understood that you were very into this, this was going to be your path, or was it, did that just emerge over over time? A little. There was no sort of push in much of either direction. I, I think they warned me off the idea of being an actor professionally, but they could see that at school it was a good way to channel a kid with a lot of energy, and that was a good ploy in the part of teachers, good teachers, I think, when they see children who could otherwise be a nuisance kind of give them responsibility. Now, um, to and, that point, who, yeah. who was Martin Tyrell? I've read about this Martin guy. Tyrell. Martin Tyrell. Tyrell. Is, uh, that's someone altogether yeah. different. I think that's that's a long-lost brother somewhere. But um, I know Martin Tyrell, is, he's, he's an inspirational human being. He was a, an English teacher, a man of the world in the sense that he smoked and drank and there was something sort of grown up about him. And in the way that a lot of modern psychology leans towards with parenting or some forms of parenting, he never really praised me much. There was just the odd moments. I really wanted to do well for him. I wanted to make him proud. But he was, you know, opening our eyes and our brains to these really extraordinarily difficult and high culture plays, prose. He was an English teacher. He was my drama and English teacher, not drama teacher, but like an English teacher. Right. He, he taught English, but he directed me in modern drama at school. And we also had a Shakespearean tradition with Mr. Jeremy Lemon, who was an equally important character in my upbringing, or my beginnings, let's say, as an actor, an Elizabethan scholar. A little bit more dogmatic than Martin, maybe. Uh, a lot of line readings, but yeah. for 13-year-old eyes on blank verse, for the first time, you need that. And uh, you know, by the second or third year, at least, I was reading it as if it was 
modern prose, and that, that, that was really down to Jeremy. And was it as early as that point that you're thinking to yourself, this is what I want to do with my life? I did a lot of school. I did a lot at preschool and, and then at university after school, a, a lot of my spare time at university. I guess university is when it really sort of hit home. You know, further education was something I always wanted to do, but it was a drama degree. I think I was sort of just going in the general direction of... I can't remember when I first thought, right, this is definitely something I want to do. There were lots of theatre trips, actually. That's probably the first time is when I... Well, both watching my parents work, but but very specifically, I remember seeing Penelope Wilson in the Deep Blue Sea at the Armada Theatre, and it was a school trip. I was with friends, some of whom were interested in theatre, some who just wanted a night out to sort of sneak a cigarette and have yeah. a naughty gin and tonic in the interval. <laughs> Fair enough. And yet I saw how it captivated them as well and I thought yeah, yeah yeah this is my world I mean of course I've seen good theatre with my parents yeah. as well so it wasn't the first exposure to the culture of it all the culture of actors and the thrill of being in an audience of you know receiving really good work but I I do remember a couple of specific moments Stephen Delane's Hamlet Penelope Wilson in the Deep Blue Sea Gangster Number One with Peter Bowles the, the original play and then a whole slew of experiences when I was a student. And this was at first University of Manchester, and then you go for your MA at London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. Exactly, which is, that was not on the university, that was me going, okay, right, well, I need maybe to sort of touch base with some formal training and then yeah. get on with it. Um, and it's also a great window, that, and a shop window, rather, for, for the profession with agents. And well, you, like when we talked it. once before, you said the big takeaway, I guess, of of Lambda was, quote, I realized that I had to be a version of myself, close quote, as an actor. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, so, so uh, well, it meant that in my adolescence, partly because my voice broke late and I was playing girls until the age of 14, and then I think literally two years later, Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, I, I got the opportunity to sort of really play a very broad spectrum. It was the hat box era of just some form of submersion in in a projected idea of what adulthood was like but it was a way into understanding that way beyond my life experience and you know I was really forcing myself to be other than myself and other in every way so when you get to Lambda you're suddenly faced with the reality that you sound the way you are the sound the way you sound look the way you are been schooled or educated or raised the way you have been and that's how the industry will perceive you so in England that's by and large, well, it's a lot to do with class, and you know those, those are the immediate go-tos and and looks, and it's like, oh, well, is he an officer type, or is he a, a Bobby on the beat, or is he a criminal, or is he? <laughs> it gets on. very divisive very early on. Yeah, and fair enough. There's 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 a there's too many of us. We're all um, surplus to requirement in my industry. It's there's, it's a, a really oversubscribed gig, so people have to kind of box you in early to make the best of you and it's it's rare that you get noticed for something and there are the odd exceptions one of them is in our film Matthew McFadden I remember watching in this amazing drama called I think Warriors it was about if I remember correctly it was about a Brummy squaddy in a, in a tank in Afghanistan or Iraq so my memory's a bit hazy of it but point being you know he's 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 playing a Brummy and or Geordie actually I think it was a Geordie I must get that right but it was an extraordinary performance and everyone presumed that was him in the way that Damien Lewis was thought to be American before right. he went oh, thank you so much <laughs> for one of my many awards. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's rare, but that does happen. So at the beginning, how at were the beginning, you... At the school as well, yeah. very specifically. Yeah. Not that they were going, oh, right, you're officer class, for right. want of a better term. But, you know, they, they didn't want to see me pretending to be other things. They wanted to get to, to something that was honest and 
me and it wasn't the kind of break you down to build you up school well there wasn't time either they would have just broken me down and just left me in pieces <laughs> I think it was only a one-year post-grad classical theatre course in a sense classical theatre course so we did you know restoration drama we did Shakespeare and Chekhov and the like and it was just I think a slowing down of what I thought acting could be but also an appreciation of another thing that it could be which is just finding profound depths within yourself rather than reaching for these sort of projections of life lives not lived and I guess my career has been a mixture of doing both so it's come full circle but it was a great training really great training was screen acting something that you were also prepared for in school or was no, that no no not not when you classical theatre course no I guess that Lambda does do that and it, I, I think even more so now you know the, the various routes into our profession are so kind of diverse in the sense of it could be well rarely is it voice just voice work but you know you, you you can go into any medium at any time I think and I think especially increasingly less so and you look at the, some of the great films on offer here at TIFF this year and you realize that age actually isn't as much it still is but it's not as much of a thing the quality of films and filmmakers isn't beholden to an obsession with youth culture when it comes to fine high quality films like the ones that are on at this festival so while there are some great younger actors it's not all about that no, no, no. and so but you, but when you come out of drama school if you're if you're good looking and half decent people go oh well, well, you know. <laughs> fundamentally yeah and so people can't get the break that way but I just started the way I think a few of us did a lot of us still do by doing theatre small parts in television bit of a bigger break in theatre bit of a bigger break in television and then you know back and forth yeah yeah was the first major substantive TV role Stephen Hawking yes you yes, should tell people this is 2004 BBC TV film Hawking I believe you're friends with Eddie Redmayne, who would later play him, and uh, it just was interesting. Well, I like to think I am. I, <laughs> I, I like him. I can't speak for him. But. Just kind of, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, probably could have an interesting conversation about the challenges of such a, a physical role yeah. and also, obviously, a, a intellectual role. But yeah. for you, why? How did that come about, and what changed after that? Did people look at you differently? A little bit, a little bit, I and mean, it wasn't. It wasn't a limelight moment in the sense of it being it broadly exposed. It was quite a modest BBC Two drama, but you know, done done in its time with a great deal of care and thought. And you know, Stephen had validated it. Obviously, lots of people have been wanting to make that story for a long time, and it was only a small part of it. Unlike Eddie's extraordinary trajectory in in, in his film. As a comparison, the first third of that film is about where our story right. kind of went. So it was more about them getting together rather than family and children and relationships and, and, and Stephen's worsening condition. It was a big break for me, though. It was a huge responsibility, as Eddie knows and, and, and triumphed um, with. But it was daunting for that, really daunting. And you, I just remember the kind of millisecond of joy that I got it. I think partly because somebody else couldn't do it or was doing something else as well. I don't I think I was the first, first choice, but I'm oh, you know, very, very, very lucky. And it was the most, yeah, profoundly humbling and extraordinary experience. And, yeah, I guess it was a launching point in a well, way. Well, so that was back in 2004, and then it was incremental along the way I've after that. got a timeline there. I got yeah, no, I'm like, I'm a little... reminding. <laughs> this is but weird that... in my position, I just... I know I don't need to worry about it too much. Right, my, all... my diary is sort of a public thing. <laughs> it's out there. the internet or right, something. You know? Right, right, right. Well, that, but what I thought was kind of interesting was that you were excellent in that, but then 
a few, it, it was not, as you say, a moment where everything suddenly no. was different. No. That seems to have come more around 2010, 2011, where let's just know for people beginning of, or the initial Sherlock in 2010. And then in 2011, Warhorse, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, Frankenstein, Frankenstein yeah. and then right after that parade's end uh, yeah, in 2012. Yeah. yeah. Just for the sake of understanding what led to what or what was actually the initial break, can, do you remember how how that all came well, together? Weirdly, I mean, Stephen Moffat credits my turn in atonement with why, why he thought there was something about me as an actor that he wanted to investigate as a potential Sherlock. I don't quite know how that marries <laughs> with, like, you know, this, this, this failed seduction of Kira Knightley turning into a, an assault on Juno Temple's character, I, uh, underage character as well. I don't know how, quite how that fitted in right. with playing the world's number one consulting detective, but, you know, Stephen's got a crazy imagination. Right. But that was the thing that brought me to his attention, I guess. And so that was that stepping stone in a way. Yeah. Then that hadn't come out by the time I was doing War Horse. I was also doing a play called After the Dance. Danny Boyle had no interest in Sherlock. Well, I hadn't seen it. I definitely know by the time I auditioned for him. And so those three things happened independently. Thomas Alfredson as well was like, hey, you're in this thing called Sherlock. Uh, what <laughs> the fuck is that? So that was an audition and a talk. And I can't remember what he'd seen me in, but he, he'd already appreciated me. So I got these three big sort of different interests, uh, different levels of the industry, a, a lovely but small part yeah. in a huge Spielberg film and Frankenstein up front and center with Johnny Lee Miller. And but the Spielberg Thomas thing Alfredson, came about different experiences because he had been aware of something. Or probably, yeah. And, and, and I would say Gina Jay as well as yeah. a casting director would have just gone, uh, you want English officers, right. Here, here's a few. <laughs> and it's not bad to be in a movie that's not made for Best Picture that, at that point also. I mean, I'm sure that... Yeah. Put you on a few more radars. Yeah, but yeah, I guess. Even though, yeah, it's of course it does because people watch those screeners. For so, sure. Yeah, for, for, it's, it's true. It doesn't matter if, you know, you, you, and you do, you notice people, whatever, wherever they yeah. right, fall in that, if it's if it's in a good movie, you get to see their work. But Sherlock clearly was the, the yeah. beginning of a big thing. And I yeah. wanted, so for that reason, I've just got to ask, you're obviously now very closely associated with that and it's been yeah. so successful. But at the beginning, yeah. when somebody comes to you and says, we want you to, play the most played character in the history of drama, I guess. Yeah. You know, what What are you thinking? Is that, I, I guess on one level in theater, you've played characters that many other yeah. people have played. We but, grow up on a canon of work that's right. got everyone else's footprint and handprints all over it. Right. So it's not, it doesn't, uh, yeah, we're all, we're all kind of playing the, the same things again and again. But no, in the instance of Sherlock, I guess it was that, but with a massive twist, which meant that there was a certain amount of blank canvas. And... I didn't. I knew because of the fame of the character that it was that was it was going to be a populist bit of entertainment. It wasn't Doctor Who, but it was. Right. It could be something that had an audience. Let's right. say preordained audience, an avid audience uh, of, of readers and and lovers of the previous superlative, in my opinion, incarnations from you know Brett to Rathbone to. The other 72. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't sweat it for that reason. Yeah, you're right. You know, it, it, fine. Hamlet's been done a lot before. It doesn't mean I never want to play the part. Right. And and the same with, although there aren't many parts I wanted to play, and Sherlock wasn't the one I wanted to play. Hamlet was. And Patrick Murrows, who I'm playing now, is. But it's been an extraordinary journey, you know. And, and you have to go into those sort of ones. You have to be certain of some things. And I knew, I knew about, I knew the humour worked. I knew that if the dynamic between him and Watson would work, that would be the core of the show. And I knew I knew a little bit about what I wanted to do with the role in the 21st century. I knew he had to think, he had to speak as fast as, as thought. And it wasn't about a sort of, and now to summarise in a kind of Poirot-esque <laughs> way, that had to happen right. all the way through. Right. Um, 
and that however silly those deductions were that they had to be sort of a little bit showstoppy and that, yeah and I, and then you know once you sort of dig around as to who this person would be in the 21st century it's, it's there are sort of fascinating layers which you know, a lot of people projected onto it about whether he's sociopath whether he's autistic whether he's asexual whether he's all of these labels not labels but you know re- real things not just labels but you know terms let's mm-hmm. say to describe someone and I just had this sort of burning secret and anyone was saying these things to me, I went, yes, but I know, I know a little bit more about it than you do. So I can understand why you project. Right. And that was what was extraordinary, the amount right. of people that came to this and, asso- and associated with it and had a really strong, sometimes obsessive, associative relationship with the character. To the point always that when you actually take it in the direction that it's always going to go in or have reveals that are deep-seated, deep-seated as well as the ones that are kind of retro-engineered as the boys brilliantly did on occasion, Mark and Stephen, I mean, the writers, you know you're going to upset a few people because they've already come to conclusions themselves because it's become, in their heads, their possession. That, for me, is where that work kind of starts to lose its interest a little bit. When um, When people are projecting their own things onto it. Well, you can't do what you are doing with it without other people saying you should be doing something else. There are certain prerequisites, of course there are. You can't start improvising Shakespeare, not unless you're in a lot of trouble with remembering what you're supposed to be saying, and even then, good luck to you. Right. (laughs) Point being, you know, there's, there's a certain amount that's there on the page and there in the inherent nature of the character, but we wouldn't be doing it if it was just the same as... Well, I, I remember when you, around the time that this first series was coming out, I think they were looking at, they were anticipating two or three million viewers, and you guys, I think, blew this it all was away. crazy. And right. I wonder, did that... I'd say, Richard, I'm sort of criticizing the idea of people taking over this and possessing it in a really obsessive way. When that happened the first time, it ha- I mean, you know, and thankfully to them, it became this worldwide yeah. phenomenon. And not them. There's a huge... What I loved about the show is everyone from... Families of every generation, three generations, yeah. sitting around having a water cool moment on a Sunday night, watching them three consecutive weeks in a row. It's an event with a television. They're there watching it in their living room, and that is it. To the others who are now hacking it or commenting on it as the episode is airing. And what I'd never realised until that night when that first episode aired is that there is a live audience, you know. It's not like television anymore where you sort of wait for a Monday right. review after the weekend or... I don't know, look at the rating. It's like you, you could just feel this reaction instantly because of things I'd never heard about called Twitter <laughs> and, you know, all the rest of it. And, and honestly, really hadn't ever engaged with Twitter and and I haven't. But, I mean, even just from an outside interest and they were looking at the feeds and seeing what was trending and it just went, it, yeah. was, it was really overnight that really really overnight not many shows are feel like events like that anymore and it seems like another thing that you might have been witnessing if you were on Twitter or, or tracking it even just on that yeah. that night was your own degree of anonymity in the world kind of yeah, evaporating sure. right so I want I want to ask I knew you when I put my moped at the time not mo- motorbike but my moped my helmet on and I was about to get on my moped I rang my agent to say how it went I said I think I really want to do this I hope it went well because I really enjoyed it it's such good material I made them laugh and that's that that's <laughs> reward enough for me it was in Beryl Virtue's flat in front of Steve Beryl Sue and Mark with Mark giving his his Mrs. Hudson and I really enjoyed it I really liked the kind of warmth I felt from them I'd worked with Mark before in on um, Start of a Ten 
and I just I, I love him and and his work and who he is. But the point of the story is that I I was a, I was literally getting on, and I just spoke to John. I went, I, this is this feels like a moment. I mean, as in, if this happens, this this something's going to change. This is as you're watching the first. No, no, no. This is as I just stepped out of the audition. I thought, if this ah, happens, if I get this, if right. we do this and get it right, this is before we done the. We did a pilot first right. because they were originally going to be episodic, not three hour long kind of acts, I guess, mm-hmm. of a series. And I knew, I knew then that it was partly because of the the, the interest that'd be shown in in the character. In fact, solely that, and also how good it was that it would be something. I had no idea it'd be the thing it now right. is. But I thought it could travel because I'd seen him, I knew culturally of how Sherlock had traveled before. Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle, that is, and, and all the un- other incarceration, incarcerations, no, Inca- inca- uh, incarnations. Incarnations. <laughs> incarcerations. All those actors that were locked right. up for doing it badly. <laughs> Poor people. Free them now. Free them. Right. It was a moment of recognizing that this is stepping into popular entertainment for want of a better term, um, that it would be something populist, that it would have an appeal. I had no idea it would be that big a deal. Would I have not done it if I'd known? That's impossible to say because I, I, I genuinely got a lot and do, do and did in the last series got a lot of pleasure out of doing it, you know, about playing him and the challenges of it. So the good stuff that comes with that is fantastic. The bad stuff's fantastically awful, but, you know. What are, what are the best and worst things? Well, the the shrinking line of privacy, the idea that you belong to everyone and that people are interested in what you have to say about anything and then kind of not interested or angry about you because they don't want you, they want someone else and, you know, there's a volume of you or an exposure of you which is really what people forget about is really down to something to do with the work, you know, and, and maybe a bit of magic and lots of circumstance and luck, of course. Luck is a huge part of it, but still, you know, I work very hard and I'm not saying it's all because of that. I'm just saying some of it is because of that. And yet people just despise you because you're famous and not think about why or maybe they don't like your acting or whatever. So all of that kind of with the love you get, even if it's just two out of a thousand of the animosity is ferocious mm-hmm. because if they're shouting into the wind, they shout louder and... Um, there was certainly a lot of nice wind coming yeah. my way. Well, so does it make your job harder, though, as an actor, to not be able to just hop on your moped and maybe go? Well, the moped was great because you've yeah. got a cycle helmet on your immediate. Then you're anonymous. anonymous. That's right. the best way to travel. Okay, but for um, other things, because it seems to me yeah, like... Yes, so well, no, because I, I, you know, I also like the fact that if, uh, you know, if I'm on the tube and or if I'm going out to buy a pint of milk, which, you know, I do still do. I have a family. <laughs> we, we, you know, there are things that happen and right. there are immediate needs. I don't... Just have minions going out and doing it for me, you know. It's not. It's very nice. To, the haters don't genuinely want to hate that loudly in public because right. after what am I? I'm just a kind of. I'm, I'm a cipher for culture. I'm not. I'm not that important. I'm not making <laughs> crucial world decisions that are affecting the planet and the well-being of the world. Um, I'm just irritating the people that don't like me. Um, so they're not going to go to... I, you irritate me. I fucking right. hate you. Know, it's not that's going to happen. So the people that you get... What I'm saying is you get the more right. benign things right. um, nine times out of ten. Right. This will now invite people to shout abuse at me, I've realised. But anyway, um, <laughs> the point is, I'd say 99% of the time, it's a really... It's a nice experience. The awkwardness is if I'm not feeling confident in who I am, which God knows all of us are human, happens regularly enough, I'm... I'm kind of, it's, I'm at a loss. You, know, you walk into a room and you know that everyone knows who you are. You have no idea who they are. That's, that's a hell of a disadvantage and not in a kind of, you know, disadvantage in for what? For some kind of social war? No, just the normal 
level of human interaction. Right. Hello, I'm. What's your name? Oh, right. right. Would you know? I, I, you know, whatever it is that right. begins your connection has already started in their heads from whatever, whether it's an opinion or a magazine or, or the work. So that's weird. That's truly weird, and that never gets any less weird. And but what I'm wondering though is, as an actor who it seems again, I'm not an actor, but I just mm. want to. It seems like you have to be able to observe people behaving normally in order yeah. to do your then you process that and, then and you, you become the observed right and yeah because of the work you've done observing other people you then become the observed and, and, and then is it harder to if you're not observing anymore like i'll just give an example sure, Maybe yeah, it, walking around an art gallery you want i mean this is the idea of being in an art gallery and looking at a piece of art and then turning around and see people for taking photographs of you yeah. is really perverse around the the time that all of those things were happening 2010 2011 2012 yeah. You, I remember, were offered an opportunity to go to Broadway with a show that you'd already been a part of yes. and opted not to do that because why? Had you already had an idea of what you wanted the trajectory to look like? Of I, selfishly, because there were a lot of other people in that show who did deserve for it to go there and it would have been a great thing. And I still feel really bad about that. I mean, they could have recast me, to be honest. I don't feel that bad about it. But um, <laughs> it was all or none, I think, at that point. I wanted to keep myself available for work and for screen work and just to see what the run would be. This was before I'd shot Warhorse, mm-hmm. um, or as I'd shot Warhorse, and we'd shot the pilot of, no, the first episodes of Sherlock had come out and Tinker Taylor was on the way, or I was about to shoot that. And I just said, look, I'm, I, want, I do want to do a bit of theatre and I want to do Frankenstein. I thought, what? you know, all of those things were sort of lining up. I thought, why should I? Why would I, as much as I absolutely adored my experience um, at the National, playing that role in After the Dance, I thought that that moment had, had happened for me. And it made it, it ended up making sense that you went the way you went because yeah. it was as a result of that that what number of things happened. Well, exactly. I think Taylor and Frankenstein definitely happened then, and then Star Trek as well. Star Trek Into Darkness was the thing that wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to do had that play gone on. And, and so, maybe even I mean, 12 Years a Slave, right? And or August Osage exactly. and, and some August of that. Sage, all the work I did after that, after my role was gone. So, yeah, I, so, I made the right choice, but for me. First time I think I saw you here in Toronto was with a movie called The Fifth Estate, when mm. in which you were playing Julian Assange. Yes. And... We have talked about and will continue to talk about a, a great many successes because you've had a, a lot of successes with, with the projects that, that you've done. Yeah. That one, it seems like it didn't go over to the extent that you guys would have liked. It was liked. not a success, no. And it's not, not for, through any fault of yours, I think, mm. but I just wonder when, is there something that you can learn from something that doesn't go as you'd hoped in that way as you've learned from the things that did click? Um. Of course, of course, and it would. I think it would be remiss of me to sort of talk about those lessons specifically with that film because there's lots of things involved, and I, I also, I don't regret the experience of doing that film. It was an amazing experience, and to try and embody some facet or interpretation of that man and the enigma and mythology and opinions that swirl around him was. A really fascinating thing and challenge, very challenging thing to engage with as an actor. So I don't regret doing it at all. And I didn't come out of it too badly. The film didn't do that well. Yeah, you look at things differently in a way and you think about things structurally, you think about how things are pitched and who's behind it. And you know, there are other things that we should have done differently. Absolutely. I'm not going to go into specifics now, but you do carry those lessons forward. And then 
Uh, also, it's I guess sometimes about, you know, you really have to be secure on everything, not just how enthralled you are to try and, you know, uh, take on the challenge of a role like that. It's got to be about how, how it fits as, together as a piece afterwards. And there will be moments where I will be very proud of films that do well as cinema, yeah. as things that even people retrospectively go, I love that film, or things that have commercial success. And I, I don't mind having a balance. I don't really care about the scorecard of, of viewing figures and you know, uh, general approbation for the, uh, you know, my validation comes in, in very different forms right. and it's not just one for me and one for them. It's not that crude a right. thing at all. I, I want, I want there to be high quality in, in, in everything I try yeah. and do, whether it's, you know, entertainment or something that's attempting to be a little bit more than just that and yeah. therefore not as much of a crowd pleaser. I want there to be quality in all those things, yeah. you know, so... It's still the same. It's still the same criteria. Well, the same bar of quality control, I guess, but just in different fields. If there's a thread that connects The Fifth Estate with your other two films that you've been yeah. to Toronto International yeah, yeah. Film Festival with, which we should note, The Imitation Game, yeah. which worked out very nicely. That worked out nicely. Best yeah. Actor nomination, Best Picture nomination, all of this. And then finally, or not finally, but thirdly, and I'm sure there will be many more, uh, <laughs> <I like laughs> with The Current War, which we, we saw premiered last night here. These are three people who actually existed. And I wonder if there's something that... And this goes back to hockey. opinion within their worlds um, who haven't been as exposed as these stories make them in a way, or not in the same way as these stories expose them. There there are parallels, and, and, you know, they're they're smart men. They're they're all fighting battles. They make enemies along the way. And... There are questionable motives or behaviours in some of their actions, but beyond that, they could not be more different. No, for sure. Which is a strange thing, because I just, there's always that journalistic headline thing where people go, so you're playing another smart, genius <laughs> maverick. Is this no, going to, I, got, I got the question, is this going to go to your head? Oh, like, oh I, I see, <laughs> you think I'm genius. playing these characters. So I, I believe I'm a genius. Well, that's, that's not where I'm going with this, but I, 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 no, I'm sure I want to, uh, we are, we are definitely going to definitely get a focus in a moment fully on the current war, but let's mm. not gloss over what was a very important moment in your life with the imitation game. Yeah. You know, if things didn't go exactly the way you might have hoped with the fifth estate, I think they exceeded, probably exceeded yeah. your, your, all of your guys' highest hopes with, with the imitation game. What, what went right in that one? I think the film went right. The film went in the kind of directions it needed to go in. I think Harvey, he's everything. He's, you know, <laughs> He's an enigmatic monster. He's a powerful uh, man who has a, a real cineast knowledge of film and at the same time, sometimes terrible taste. <laughs> so that's really good taste. And he'll, he'll say this himself. Yeah. That's, that's what's kind of irritatingly charming about the guy. Had you dealt um, with him before the imitation game? No. No, I don't think I had. No, I don't. Well, for the sake, I definitely don't think it was, right. was, was, I can't remember. I don't think yeah. so. Oh, no, August of Sage Council. Oh, right, 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 right. He gave me a hard time because, the, you know, the SAG Awards and both companies, um, August of Sage and 12 Years a Slave, were up for <laughs> awards. And he was like, oh, you're oh, you're on the slave table. You're not, <laughs> well, you don't like your, oh, you don't like, oh, you're, you're just such a turncoat. <laughs> That's a great invitation. Um, <laughs> I spent some time with the guy. Um, but you know, it, it look he's he makes films, really good films, and films that are in a bracket that wouldn't get made otherwise. Right. And I think you know, culture, it's very easy to 
lambasting and seeing as this sort of, you know, cigar chomping movie mogul of old <laughs> with all the good and bad that comes with that. But who else would be doing it, it if it wasn't? He can put it together. He yeah. can make things happen. And, and in unlikely, I mean, really, who had heard of more than seldom aside from people who had seen his one major foreign film. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And, and also Alfonso in this. He pushed right. for Alfonso. I mean, right. not, you know, obviously Alfonso's work was known from Beyond the Dying Girl, but I don't think me, people would immediately make the leap to no. this work at no. all. And I, I can't remember when Alfonso approached, but he was really a champion of, of him directing this. And, I, you know, I've got to admire him. And, you know, he works with Scorsese and Tarantino. He's, you know, he's... He's not always the boss boss. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, he's, he's a man who um, has made some extraordinary films. Um, and I think that helped a lot. You know, he understood that this, it couldn't just be a spy thriller and it couldn't just be a sort of a heartbreaking love story. And it couldn't just be a revelatory film about a massive social injustice done to this and many thousands of other men during that period of our shameful history. Um, well, that shameful period of our history, I should say, it's not all shameful, it's not all of it. There's a lot of it but, right. that is, but right. yeah, that, that, that was another moment that wasn't good. And to be able to bring that story to life and those struggles of Alan Turing's to life, to really, really bring that into the spotlight, you know, no matter, the film maybe was compromised in the way that we you do when you condense a moment of Eureka-like I've got it, you know, the breaking of the code <laughs> moment, you know, that, that those crowd-pleasing moments. But it was really undercut by something else. By the third act of the film, you were in another, you were in another film altogether, which was about a man being betrayed by the society he'd helped and saved, really. Their intolerance, you know, he'd tried to stop the ultimate force of intolerance at that time, which was the Nazis, only to be treated by his own as, as an outsider, as unwanted, as curable everything the Nazis were doing to people they didn't like. And uh, it was in our own good country that he'd help bring a victory about for. So, you know, that that to me was the really deep terrain of that character yeah. to, to, to try and bring to the fore. And that was what was really, really, really right, you know. Um, there was a quiet heroism, I think. You know, Sanjay's always going to divide people. As Just to go back to him quickly, there's always an element where he'll divide people. I think people looking at Turing can't help but be moved into a position of however difficult however much maybe he's overcredited with some things in his field I think that's a, there's a lot of you know there's a volume or, or sound board of argument about these people and what they've achieved and whether it's all them or other people or improving on other people but like Edison says in the film it's it, it takes all of us it's not just about one person yeah. there are the firebrands there are the Teslas but they're very very rare and they often don't get recognized as sadly Tesla right. didn't but the point is, we did, but not, I mean, not the way he should have been. Right. Again, another man wronged uh, in his time, partly because he was an outsider to that culture. But my point is, it's about finding a humanity that makes them heroic. And the film let that breathe. It let that, I mean, as as, as his life ended in tragedy, that tragedy is Anna Turing's finest victory, yeah. in a sense. It, now that we don't forget that, now that things have changed, now that those men have been posthumously pardoned, now that you know we are we are fully aware of their plight, and that that's that is that's almost as big a victory no, in a way as, as 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 what he did for the Enigma effort in the war and for computing and and math science in general. Although his work is not to be underestimated in that field, but I could I guess I could talk more about my relationship to him through the all pervasive humanity of the character as opposed to that simply because I'm I'm less of an expert in the other fields. <laughs> I don't know as much about it. Well so to to come back to that film's impact on you though, mm-hmm. you the movie comes out late twenty fourteen, early twenty fifteen, you get first 
Oscar nomination of your career. Oh, that's very kind. Thank and you. I want to. It, it, it is a, 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 a happy man. It was, well, it was, hey, a, it was a, a well-earned one. And I just wonder for you, though, you know, that's an interesting moment. We've had a lot of guests on who say that everyone assumes that that's a, a point where you just, you know, you know, you're it's smooth sailing from there. But a Hell lot no. of people have Hell said. No. Hell no. I mean, look. Confusing I, 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 moment, I was, right? Yeah, of course. And I was asking someone last year who won and they couldn't remember. You know, that's yeah, the, yeah, this yeah. Is the point. You know, it's a very fast turnaround in this culture. And awards are great for the lifespan of the film and, of course, for careers, of course, for that. But at the same time, and in, in my case, I, you know, I'm, I really do mean this. I can't say this enough times. To, to bring that story and to be able to talk about that man again and again and again yeah. was part of the the thrill of, of the work and that's not always the case and it, it really genuinely with him it felt like a, a wonderful gift to have been given so I was happy to do it when you're doing that all the time it's like can we we're voting we're comparing this work with this work we're saying that's better because of this or that and I find I, then it washes over and I've been on juries not for Oscars right. but for other awards and it breaks it down a little bit too much for me. It's part of the business of it. It's part of how films have a longevity in the yeah. season. And yeah. and I guess it always has been. Of course it has. And yeah, look, the parties are fun when the selfies stop and you actually get to dance with your colleagues. Right. Of course there's, right. there's a moment of joy. And, and you know, what, what a high-class problem to have. But it is a weird place to be existing in. You're flying left, right, and center. You're talking to people you've never right. met before endlessly. <laughs> You're meeting people, you know, very fleetingly. Especially when you're doing it for Harvey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's like, how do you get yourself back? How do you remember this is actually about a bit of work right. you did with right. a director, a crew, and a cast on a location in a certain period of time, about a certain person in a certain period of their time. Like, just draw it back to its essence. It can get very, very far away from all of that. Well, um, and for many people, they then just immediately try to capitalize on that. And instead, what you did, which was very interesting, was you didn't go and immediately just sort of take the the biggest offer to do a movie that I think you could have done. I did play Doctor Strange. That came out that, that, but, but in between what happened... Just see your going, hang on, no, 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 we're getting but to no, that. Actually, I don't think that was because what did of you that. Do, doing, what did yeah. you do in between? You went back and did Hamlet. Yes, I did. I did. I did. I did. And let's in just a very know, big theatre, which was interesting. Um, and, and this was very... I mean, again, this is probably the ultimate part, especially for a British actor. Mm. And it was very well received. From one credit, quote... This is a Hamlet for a world on edge, a warning from history, and a plea for new ideas from a new generation, close quote. But, I mean, for you, was that in some ways a, just a, nice a return or a reminder to, of why you do what you do? Yes. Uh, it was also timing. It wasn't necessarily, like, uh, strategically, like, hmm, I've Alec been Clenzer. Oscar nominated. <laughs> no, I'm going to go. And also, you know, I said, the reason I said in a big theater was it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of, oh, look, he's doing theatre work and off, 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 off Broadway of a lesson <laughs> right. playwright it was the um, national and theater. walking on as a camera. Yeah. It, was, it, it was the Barbican, but a huge stage. I, and I felt I had to democratise it. I knew how many people want to see it. And obviously NT Live was a very important yeah, early discussion great. with that. And I did really, it felt important to me. Um, it, it, a bit of chagrin, I have to say, when people said, I've seen it five times. I think, well, please stop because there are people who haven't seen it once right. or never see it in the theatre right. because you are block booking your tickets. Right. and. So it, that can backfire, that thing of <laughs> opening a, a big barn door to to that scale of work and also that scale of production as well. It was hard work, but I don't know if I'd have my time again or if we did it again or if there was another chance to play him at some point mm -hmm. before I'm King Hamlet rather than Prince Hamlet. Right. <laughs> I'd definitely do it in a smaller space. But my point is, yeah, it wasn't a strategic thing of going from 
what's seen as a pinnacle of success sure. uh, on a on a grander stage to something more humble. It was it's Hamlet for Christ's sake. But I mean, it's I imagine huge. it serves as a palate cleanser anyway. A palate cleanser? <laughs> no, I can't. I can't validate that no. comment. I can't talk about Hamlet as a palate cleanser. <laughs> Well, after after uh, the glad handing of, of awards, oh, I see season. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah to get back to authentic work in rehearsal room and do. Right. Of course, listen. Anything right. is. Uh, I'm lucky enough to right. be. I'm not. Not we're going to talk about it because it's the, the real joy of it is is it's private. But I'm lucky enough to be a father of now two boys, yes. and there's there's nothing like that as a, as far as a, in big inverted commas palette cleanser yes, goes. Right. Right? <laughs> it's like changing the, a diaper. There are, there are, yeah, there are there are many many things that that bring you back to earth with a smile on that front. And home life and my incredible wife and everything of that. Yeah. So she and them are, that's, yeah, that's a given. But in work, yes, um, but anything would have been, yeah. honestly, anything would have been a power right. cleanser to that. Because well, you can't go anywhere afterwards. That's the thing. It's like, if you do, then you, I think you go mad. I think right. you buy uh, somewhere in Hollywood and just lose your mind a bit. Well, the last of the current war things is, as long as you mention it, Doctor Strange, which we were introduced to you as this Marvel superhero in Doctor Strange in 2016. I guess we're going to see him again this year, Thor, Ragnarok, and then in 2018 in Avengers Infinity War. The first one was made with a large budget, $165 million, grossed a fortune, 677 and in a rarity for superhero movies was actually liked by critics as well, Woo-hoo! which is not, uh, not always the case at all. Yeah. So what, though, for you is the driving reason to go and sign up to do I don't know how many how how long you sign your life away to Marvel or how many films are you know for something like that but you know is it truly just about doing something different or is it a, a good way to maintain a, a, a large audience and you know internationally or what's the for you why go and do that I think both those things but that 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 sort of retrospective logic you know the primary focus is do I want to play this part you know yeah, of course, it's a huge opportunity. And with that comes, you know, some financial security. You know, there are, there's, it's a contract over a period of time yeah. as well as a very, very nice amount of Upfront. You know, what we earn. <laughs> but, you know, it, and, and that's that's very tempting when, again, with, with family and yeah. everything else, it's it's great. But, you, yeah, you, you, you'd be really, really hurting yourself, I think, if you, you know, it's possible to live within your means at any level in our industry if you are being employed and that's, you know... That's a tiny percentile of our workforce. So, really, honestly, I think it's it's not actually about that. It's it's that is just retrospective in the sense that you have to really want to do it, and it won't work if you're just doing it for those reasons. You know, it won't travel to an audience. It won't have hopefully what it did have. You know, this with those figures and that reaction you talked about, the kind of sophistication, the newness of it, trying to reinvent the wheel. We've seen countless superheroes. What's different about this one? How is it going to be a different experience for an audience, let alone a different character? All of those challenges made it just a really, really intriguing prospect. And also to just make that shift from Hamlet to that was was, was blissful. <laughs> yeah. you know? And I literally, I did, I was doing Hamlet, training for Strange, doing Doctor Strange, then going into the fourth a series of sure. Sherlock yeah. back to back to back and having a new family as well and where and did it, the what, current what, war come in on this this must have been in there. War, well not yeah no a little little time afterwards a little yeah. time afterwards I mean developed and talked about right. all, all through all those things but no it was a little while afterwards so the current war just again is the movie that you're here in Toronto with that mm-hmm. people will be seeing I believe in November is when it's going to start to Correct. roll out yeah. you're playing 
Thomas Elva Edison, who is somebody everybody knows of but maybe doesn't know all that much about, just a couple of key facts. And I just wonder, how did it first cross your radar and what, in this case, was the appeal? Because I would think it must be pretty daunting to play, again, somebody who is so famous, more than even, you know, an an Alan Turing who deserves to be that famous, but and so brilliant and just people come in, I guess, with their preconceived notions. So what for you were the considerations? Just a, a, a Bobby Dazzler of a script. Harvey was already sort of behind it and he, he saw the potential of the whole film and and I was intrigued by the guy. I didn't know if I liked him. I didn't know if I liked him. And I thought, look, I really want to veer away from him just being the bad guy. He loses the war, he plays dirty, he neglects his family. But there's a, there's a lot of, <laughs> he, he suffers a lot as well because of that. And I just found that grey area really intriguing. I couldn't quite leave it alone. Yes, there's a challenge as well of playing a, a, a true American icon, another damn Brit taking the work away from Americans. <laughs> well, so, we returned uh, the favour with Meryl and uh, the Iron Lady. Yeah, so exactly. Was... <laughs> it's all right. It's all, all fair enough. More. No, but seriously, I think it's... Yeah, she always gets rolled out. Poor Meryl, is that one excuse. <laughs> she, 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 she said to me when I first met her at the August of Sage County read-through, she came up to me and went, oh, it's so nice we get to play in each other's sandpits. <laughs> uh, and I went, yes, it, yes, it is, Margaret. And she right. roared with laughter. Right. But, you know, it, it, it is, it is. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's part of the joy, I think, for all of us is to, is to be able to do stuff that's outside of our experience. Are you very comfortable with putting on an American accent? Or in this case, what would, what would, it was a yeah. specific American it was very specific accent. and also, well, it was based very much on the sort of phonograph recording, which is probably slightly pitched up, slightly high, more high speed, and he's older, so it's got a, a sort of tonality that's much more sort of up like that and, you know, slightly wobbly, but there's that, there's a, that, that you know, his voice kind of, there's something right. of his voice that exists in perpetuity, you know, for all time, basically. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I, I know, I, I've got an idea of where we could go with, making that younger with with bringing him to life in in the earlier part of the lesser known life and love of of Thomas Alva Edison and also just the thing of looking behind the P.T. Barnum showmanship of it all you know there's a lot of pictures of him smiling or looking kind of serious and gruff and young (laughs) and and, and arrogant but it's also who was he like what was he really like with his man what was he really like with his wife and his children what kept him awake at night what made him happy what broke his heart what moved him little tidbits about his lack of personal hygiene, but he's also a man who has, you know, sexual appetites mm-hmm. and has a, a, um, a relationship, a sensual relationship with the world. He's not completely closed off in his laboratory. He has a healthy disrespect for power and money and thinks it should be, the world should be about the meritocracy, driven partly by his own self-belief and arrogance and ego, but he did have an appreciation for others as well, although within the war, he, it's a film about... It's a lot, as I really realised last night, so much of this film is about listening and about not being able to and about how it is a film is existing in a culture which is constantly being attacked, really properly attacked by funding being withdrawn, literally, to, to dumb us down make it about a headline, a tweet, nothing else matters. It's all about this instantaneous, paper-thin understanding of the world, this sort of journalistic headline mentality. And this film dares you to sort of engage with complex, true-to-life, universally human aspects of our interaction. And to dare you to remember that if you misfire with that, if you go in the wrong direction, if you don't hear what, what you're being told, you, you can you can really reap 
um, the rewards of that in a bad way and he, he ignores the advice, the best advice, the best person he ever had in his presence, his advice, and loses the war. But he, he picked himself up and carried on and that was another thing that intrigued me about him. He didn't stop. He lost that war, but he carried on. He carried on. It's about his failure, this film, but it's also about his success. In- and it, oddly, we might not know who Benedict Cumberbatch is were it not for Mr. Edison's <laughs> movie invention. I mean, but as he says in the film, and, and, and I, I think did in, in a different way say in his life, you know, invention, well, there's always the, the perspiration and inspiration part, but which is the well-known quote, but it's, it's, it's also very true that it's, it is a collaborative effort. So people who dismiss him as just a, a tinkerer who meddled in patents and kind of had a had a, a lockdown on on the manufacturing, it, a lot of that is true, but that still took a lot of chutzpah. And even for that alone, he should be credited as this man who, in a broad sense, started the research and development idea of invention, not just trialed and tested, but manufactured and uh, not just designed, trialed and tested, but also manufactured and branded his product and made it taste so damn good that people were part of the Harlan yeah. Dollars to buy it, as he says in the film. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not just one person, but it is at the end of the day when it comes down to whose name's on the product, it does become about one person. And I think that's what made him obsessive. It wasn't that it had to be me, me, me in control. It's like if I don't get what he understood the public needed as the Edison product, then it's just it's too much of everything. The money wasn't a big concern for him. You know, that was another appeal as well. He was driven by a need to, you know, leave a legacy that was about making the world a better place. But he did a lot more shouting about it because he had a P.T. Barnum ability to sell it. He was a really smart, funny, good showtime guy who could who can make the journalists and everyone else around him enjoy his company as well as marvel at the brilliance of his work and what he'd done with other people's work as well. Let's Let's put that out there. So whether it was Bell or... Westinghouse or Tesla who were gnawing away at him, you know, part of his reason, I think, for structuring and kind of control over all that is to keep the idea that he is able to be the person who can forefront something and keep that simple. But as we all know, it's as tangled as those wires hanging in the early stages of electrifying New York City. It's a mess. You look at any one product now, I mean, Westinghouse came into a news report recently in the UK about a... Toshiba bought Westinghouse as part of, an, of the energy company with uh, in line with making nuclear energy. And it was about the ownership of this, or this big deal going down in, in the UK about this um, um, nuclear plant and its refurbishment. And Westinghouse's name is just thrown in there with, but with five other, with Toshiba, right. who I remember knows. from making computer. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy how yeah. these companies are constantly moving and amalgamating. And it's, it's been amorphous like that. I finding out General Electric. I didn't realize. I forgot. Wasn't that was, great? Yeah, was I great know, it's a fun. great, great moment. Yeah. Great moment in the film. Well, um, just as a final thing here, I guess, you know, what is it that is keeping you working as hard as you continue to work and putting being as prolific? And, and is there something still specifically on the, on the bucket list for you as an actor, what's what's next? This is always a good opportunity for me to say that and to, to, to make something happen, but I don't yeah. I don't have that at the moment. I'm I'm moving into a terrain now where I'm trying to foster relationships with directors I really want to work with and have that experience, both for the sake of improving my craft, but also because I should be so lucky. So you know, there's a lovely bucket list of people who I won't mention right now. They know who they are. <laughs> I badger them enough. I'm also a producer now. I produced on the current war with our company, Sunny March, and we have a great slate of material, new found adaptations, book titles, the, the kind of spread that you'd expect, but a really healthy, diverse spread of, of subject matter. 
which I always want to talk about, but at the same time I've learned as a producer that's a very bad idea. <laughs> when you work at the beginning of things, you know that they are often just the beginnings right. and they never go anywhere. So right. it would be bad juju to sort of talk about um, things that haven't come to fruition yet. But I'm loving that. I'm really loving that. And and it's not all about me. It's a, That's just about making high-quality work I could be really proud of. If, I, if I'd sat in the audience last night and just had my name as a producer, I would have been absolutely over the moon. I think Alfonso... And everybody we put our faith in in this is working at the top of their game to produce something that's truly cinematic, that's a piece of film, a cinema, a piece of near European standards, inventiveness and quirkiness and uniqueness for a, you know, a well-known era and a period drama that's not stuck in the confines of its costumes and beautiful sets as they both are but that gives it an energy and a, and a vivacity to make you realise these were men, young men, pioneering in a time of incredible advancement in human technology and industry. And it's done with a score and with lighting and Chung's camera movement and Alfonso's deft, nuanced approach to what the broader kind of achievements and promise of cinema can be. And I just I could not be more proud of it. And if I wasn't in it, I would be equally proud. Um, Should to have be. Some Congratulations and thank you so much for doing this. Thank I really you. Appreciate My pleasure. It. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.